Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. It's week two of Halloween episodes, and this week I'm going to be reading to you some beautiful classics. I call this episode Old Tales Unheard because the stories this week aren't the old faithful you're probably used to when it comes to classic horror or gothic literature. You won't find any Poe or Lovecraft this week, but I hope you'll discover some other authors who wrote just as beautifully and hauntingly. Also, you can add these to your horror repertoire, and thus you can outsnob your friends next time they start talking classic horror. Thanks to all those who joined my live stream yesterday. I will definitely be doing more of those in the future. If you missed it, you can still join Last Profiler on the Left's Facebook group, and the video has been posted. Now, our first story of the evening was published in 1896 by Gertrude Atherton, and it's called The Striding Place. Weagle continental and detached, tired early of grouse shooting. To stand propped against a sod fence while his host's workmen rooted up the birds with long poles and drove them towards the waiting guns, made him feel himself a parody on the ancestors who had roamed the moors and forests of this west riding of Yorkshire in hot pursuit of game, worth the killing. But when in England in August, he always accepted whatever proffered for the season and invited his host to shoot pheasants on his estates in the south. The amusements of life, he argued, should be accepted with the same philosophy as its ills. It had been a bad day, a heavy rain had made the moor so spongy that it fairly sprang beneath the feet. Whether or not the grouse had haunts of their own, wherein they were immune from rheumatism, the bag had been small. The women, too, were an unusually dull lot, with the exception of a new-minded debutante who bothered Weagle at dinner by demanding the verbal restoration of the vague paintings on the vaulted roof above them. But it was no one of these things that sat on Weagle's mind, as when the other men went up to bed, he let himself out of the castle and sauntered down to the river. His intimate friend, the companion of his boyhood and the chum of his college days, his fellow traveler in many lands, the man for whom he possessed stronger affection than for all men, had mysteriously disappeared two days ago, and his track might have sprung to the upper air for all trace he had left behind him. He had been a guest on the adjoining estate during the past week, shooting with the fervor of the true sportsman making love in the intervals to Adeline Cavan, and apparently in the best of spirits. As far as was known, 
there was nothing to lower his mental mercury, for his rent roll was a large one. Miss Cavan blushed whenever he looked at her, and, being one of the best shots in England, he was never happier than in August. The suicide theory was preposterous, all agreed, and there was as little reason to believe him murdered. Nevertheless, he had walked out of March Abbey two nights ago, without hat or overcoat, and had not been seen since. The country was being patrolled night and day. A hundred keepers and workmen were beating the woods and poking the bogs on the moors, but as yet, not so much as a handkerchief had been found. Weagle did not believe for a moment that Wyatt Gifford was dead, and although it was impossible not to be affected by the general uneasiness, he was disposed to be more angry than frightened. At Cambridge, Gifford had been an incorrigible practical joker, and by no means had outgrown the habit. It would be like him to cut across the country in his evening clothes, board a cattle train, and amuse himself touching up the picture of the sensation in West Riding. However, Weagle's affection for his friend was too deep to companion with tranquility in the present state of doubt, and instead of going to bed early with the other men, he determined to walk until ready for sleep. He went down to the river and followed the path through the woods. There was no moon, but the stars sprinkled their cold light upon the pretty belt of water flowing placidly past wood and ruin, between green masses of overhanging rocks or sloping banks tangled with tree and shrub, leaping occasionally over stones with the harsh notes of an angry scold, to recover its equanimity the moment the way was clear again. It was very dark in the depths where Weagle trod. He smiled as he recalled a remark of Gifford's. An English wood is like a good many other things in life, very promising at a distance, but a hollow mockery when you get within. You see daylight on both sides, and the sun freckles the very bracken. Our woods need the night to make them seem what they ought to be, what they once were, before our ancestors' descendants demanded so much more money in these so much more various days. Weagle strolled along, smoking and thinking of his friend, his pranks, many of which had done more credit to his imagination than this, and recalling conversations that had lasted the night through. Just before the end of the London season, they had walked the streets one hot night after a party, discussing the various theories of the soul's destiny. That afternoon, they had met at the coffin of a college friend, whose mind had been blank for the past three years. Some months previously, they had called at the asylum to see him. 
His expression had been senile. His face imprinted with the record of debauchery. In death, the face was placid, intelligent, without ignoble lineation. The face of the man they had known at college. Weagle and Gifford had had no time to comment there, and the afternoon and evening were full, but coming forth from the house of festivity together, they had reverted almost at once to the topic. I cherish the theory, Gifford had said, that the soul sometimes lingers in the body after death. During madness, of course, it is an impotent prisoner, albeit a conscious one. Fancy its agony and its horror. What more natural than that? When the life spark goes out, the tortured soul should take possession of the vacant skull and triumph once more for a few hours while old friends look their last. It has had time to repent while compelled to crouch and behold the result of its work. And it has shriveled itself into a state of comparative purity. If I had my way, I should stay inside my bones until the coffin has gone into its niche, that I might obviate for my poor old comrade the tragic impersonality of death. And I should like to see justice done to it, as it were, to see it lowered among its ancestors, with a ceremony and solemnity that are its due. I am afraid that if I ever dissevered myself too quickly, I should yield to curiosity and hasten to investigate the mysteries of space. You believe in the soul as an independent entity, then? And that it and the vital principle are not one and the same? Absolutely. The body and soul are twins, life comrades, sometimes friends, sometimes enemies, but always loyal in the last instance. Someday, when I am tired of this world, I shall go to India and become a Mahatma, solely for the pleasure of receiving proof during life of this independent relationship. Suppose you were not sealed up properly and returned after one of your astral flights to find your earthly part unfit for habitation. It is an experiment I don't think I should care to try unless even juggling with soul and flesh had palled. That would not be an uninteresting predicament. I should rather enjoy experimenting with broken machinery. The high, wild roar of water smote suddenly upon Weagle's ear and checked his memories. He left the wood and walked out on the huge slippery stones which nearly closed the river wharf at this point and watched the waters boil down into the narrow pass with their furious, untiring energy. The black quiet of the woods rose high on either side. The stars seemed colder and whiter just above. On either hand, 
the perspective of the river might have run into a rayless cavern. There was no lonelier spot in England, nor one which had the right to claim so many ghosts, if ghosts there were. Weagle was not a coward, but he recalled uncomfortably the tales of those that had been done to death in the Strid. Wordsworth's boy of Egremond had been disposed of by the practical Whitaker, but countless others, more venturesome than wise, had gone down into that narrow boiling course, never to appear in the still pool a few yards beyond. Below the great rocks, which formed the walls of the Strid, was believed to be a natural vault, onto whose shelves the dead were drawn. The spot had an ugly fascination. Weagle stood, visioning skeletons uncoffined and green, the home of the eyeless things which had devoured all that had covered and filled that rattling symbol of man's mortality. Then fell to wondering if anyone had attempted to leap the strid of late. It was covered with slime. He had never seen it look so treacherous. He shuddered and turned away, impelled despite his manhood to flee the spot. As he did so, something tossing in the foam below the fall, something as white yet independent of it, caught his eye and arrested his step. Then he saw that it was describing a contrary motion to the rushing water, an upward-backward motion. Weagle stood rigid, breathless. He fancied he heard the crackling of his hair. Was that a hand? It thrust itself still higher above the boiling foam. Turning sideways, and four frantic fingers were distinctly visible against the black rock beyond. Weagle's superstitious terror left him. A man was there struggling to free himself from the suction beneath the strid. Swept down, doubtless, but a moment before his arrival, perhaps as he stood with his back to the current. He stepped as close to the edge as he dared. The hand doubled as if in imprecation, shaking savagely in the face of that force which leaves its creatures to immutable law, then spread wide again clutching, expanding, crying for help as audibly as the human voice. Weagle dashed to the nearest tree, dragged and twisted off a branch with his strong arms and returned as swiftly to the strid. The hand was in the same place, still gesticulating as wildly. The body was undoubtedly caught in the rocks below perhaps already halfway along one of those hideous shelves. Weagle let himself down upon a lower rock, braced his shoulder against the mass beside him, then, leaning out over the water, thrust the branch into the hand. 
The fingers clutched it convulsively. Weagle tugged powerfully. His own feet dragged perilously near the edge. For a moment, he produced no impression. Then an arm shot above the waters. The blood sprang to Weagle's head. He was choked with the impression that the strid had him in her roaring hold and he saw nothing. Then the mist cleared. The hand and arm were nearer, although the rest of the body was still concealed by the foam. Weagle peered out with distended eyes. The meager light revealed in the cuffs links of a peculiar device. The fingers clutching the branch were as familiar. Weagle forgot the slippery stones, the terrible death if he stepped too far. He pulled with passionate will and muscle. Memories flung themselves into the hot light of his brain, trooping rapidly upon each other's heels, as in the thought of the drowning. Most of the pleasures of his life, good and bad, were identified in some way with this friend. Scenes of college days, of travel, where they had deliberately sought adventure and stood between one another and death upon more occasions than one, of hours of delightful companionship among the treasures of art and others in the pursuit of pleasure, flashed like the changing particles of a kaleidoscope. Weagle had loved several women, but he would have flouted in these moments the thought that he had ever loved any woman as he had loved Wyatt Gifford. There were so many charming women in the world, and in the 32 years of his life, he had never known another man to whom he had cared to give his intimate friendship. He threw himself on his face. His wrists were cracking. The skin was torn from his hands. The fingers still gripped the stick. There was life in them yet. Suddenly, something gave way. The hand swung about, tearing the branch from Weagle's grasp. The body had been liberated and flung outward, though still submerged by the foam and spray. Weagle scrambled to his feet and sprang along the rocks, knowing that the danger from the suction was over and that Gifford must be carried straight to the quiet pool. Gifford was a fish in the water and could live under it longer than most men. If he survived this, it would not be the first time that his pluck and science had saved him from drowning. Weagle reached the pool. A man in his evening clothes floated on it. His face turned toward a projecting rock over which his arm had fallen, upholding the body. The hand that had held the branch hung limply over the rock, its white reflection visible in the black water. Weagle plunged into the shallow pool, lifted Gifford in his arms and returned to the bank. He laid the body down and threw off his coat that he might be the freer to practice the methods of resuscitation. 
He was glad of the moment's respite. The valiant life in the man might have been exhausted in the last struggle. He had not dared to look at his face, to put his ear to the heart. The hesitation lasted but a moment. There was no time to lose. He turned to his prostrate friend. As he did so, something strange and disagreeable smote his senses. For a half moment, he did not appreciate its nature. Then his teeth clacked together, his feet, his outstretched arms pointed toward the woods. But he sprang to the side of the man and bent down and peered into his face. There was no face. Our next story tonight is called The Boarded Window, An Incident in the Life of an Ohio Pioneer. This was written by Ambrose Bierce, and it was originally published on April 12, 1891. In 1830, only a few miles away from what is now the great city of Cincinnati, lay an immense and almost unbroken forest. The whole region was sparsely settled by people of the frontier, restless souls who no sooner had hewn fairly habitable homes out of the wilderness and attained to that degree of prosperity, which today we should call indigence then, impelled by some mysterious impulse of their nature, they abandoned all and pushed farther westward to encounter new perils and privations in the effort to regain the meager comforts which they had voluntarily renounced. Many of them had already forsaken that region for the remoter settlements, but among those remaining, was one who had been of those first arriving. He lived alone in a house of logs, surrounded on all sides by the great forest, of whose gloom and silence he seemed a part. For no one had ever known him to smile or speak a needless word. His simple wants were supplied by the sale of barter of skins of wild animals, in the river town. For not a thing did he grow upon the land which, if needful, he might have claimed by right of undisturbed possession. There were evidences of improvement. A few acres of ground immediately about the house had once been cleared of its trees, the decayed stumps of which were half concealed by the new growth that had been suffered to repair the ravage wrought by the axe. Apparently, the man's zeal for agriculture had burned with a failing flame, expiring in its penitential ashes. The little log house, with its chimney of sticks, its roof of warping clapboards, weighted with traversing poles and its chinking of clay, had a single door 
and directly opposite, a window. The latter, however, was boarded up. Nobody could remember a time when it was not, and none knew why it was so closed. Certainly not because of the occupant's dislike of light and air, for on those rare occasions when a hunter had passed that lonely spot, the recluse had commonly been seen sunning himself on his doorstep, if heaven had provided sunshine for his need. I fancy there are few persons living today who ever knew the secret of that window, but I am one as you shall see. The man's name was said to be Murloc. He was apparently 70 years old, actually about 50. Something besides years had had a hand in his aging. His hair and long, full beard were white. His gray, lusterless eyes sunken. His face singularly seamed with wrinkles, which appeared to belong to two intersecting systems. In figure, he was tall and spare, with a stoop of the shoulders, a burden-bearer. I never saw him, these particulars I learned from my grandfather, from whom, also, I got the man's story when I was a lad. He had known him when living nearby in that early day. One day, Murloc was found in his cabin, dead. It was not a time and a place for coroners and newspapers, and I suppose it was agreed that he had died from natural causes, or I should have been told and should remember. I only know that, with what was probably a sense of the fitness of things, the body was buried near the cabin, alongside the grave of his wife, who had preceded him by so many years that local tradition had retained hardly a hint of her existence. That closes the final chapter of this true story, excepting, indeed, the circumstance that many years afterward, in company with an equally intrepid spirit, I penetrated to the place and ventured near enough to the ruined cabin to throw a stone against it and ran away to avoid the ghost which every well-informed boy thereabout knew haunted the spot. But there is an earlier chapter, that supplied by my grandfather. When Murloc built his cabin and began laying sturdily about with his axe to hew out a farm, the rifle, meanwhile, his means of support. He was young, strong, and full of hope. In that eastern country, whence he came, he had married, as was the fashion, a young woman, and always worthy of his honest devotion, who shared the dangers and privations of his lot with a willing spirit and light heart. There is no known record of her name of her charms of mind and person tradition is silent and the doubter is at liberty to entertain his doubt, but God forbid that I should share it. 
of their affection and happiness, there is an abundant assurance in every added day of the man's widowed life. For what but the magnetism of a blessed memory could have chained that venturesome spirit to a lot like that? One day, Murloc returned from gunning in a distant part of the forest to find his wife prostrate with fever and delirious. There was no physician within miles, no neighbor, nor was she in a condition to be left to summon help. So he set about the task of nursing her back to health, but at the end of the third day, she fell into unconsciousness and so passed away, apparently with never a gleam of returning reason. From what we know of a nature like his, we may venture to sketch in some of the details of the outline picture drawn by my grandfather. When convinced that she was dead, Murloc had sense enough to remember that the dead must be prepared for burial. In performance of this sacred duty, he blundered now and again, did certain things incorrectly, and others which he did correctly were done over and over. His occasional failures to accomplish some simple and ordinary act filled him with astonishment, like that of a drunken man who wanders at the suspension of familiar natural laws. He was surprised, too, that he did not weep. Surprised and a little ashamed. Surely it is unkind not to weep for the dead. Tomorrow, he said aloud, I shall have to make the coffin and dig the grave, and then I shall miss her when she is no longer in sight. But now, she is dead, of course, but it is all right. It must be all right, somehow. Things cannot be so bad as they seem. He stood over the body in the fading light, adjusting the hair and putting the finishing touches to the simple toilet, doing all mechanically with soulless care. And still, through his consciousness, ran an undersense of conviction that all was right, that he should have her again as before, and everything explained. He had no experience in grief. His capacity had not been enlarged by use. His heart could not contain it all, nor his imagination rightly conceive it. He did not know he was so hard-struck. That knowledge would come later and never go. Grief is an artist of powers as various as the instruments upon which he plays his dirges for the dead, evoking from some the sharpest, shrillest notes, from others the low, grave chords that throb, recurrent with the slow beating of a distant drum. Some natures it startles, some it stupefies. To one it comes like the stroke of an arrow, stinging all the sensibilities to a keener life. To another, as the blow of a bludgeon, 
which is crushing, benumbs. We may conceive Murloc to have been that way affected, for, and here we are upon surer ground than that of conjecture, no sooner had he finished his pious work than, sinking into a chair by the side of the table, upon which the body lay, and noting how white the profile showed in the deepening gloom. He laid his arms upon the table's edge and dropped his face into them, tearless yet, and unutterably weary. At that moment came in through the open window a long, wailing sound like the cry of a lost child, in the far deeps of the darkening woods. But the man did not move. Again, and nearer than before, sounded that unearthly cry upon his failing sense. Perhaps it was a wild beast. Perhaps it was a dream. For Murloc was asleep. Some hours later, as it Afterward appeared, this unfaithful watcher awoke, and, lifting his head from his arms, intently listened. He knew not why. There, in the black darkness by the side of the dead, recalling all without a shock, he strained his eyes to see. He knew not what. His senses were all alert. His breath was suspended. His blood had stilled its tides as if to assist the silence. Who? What had wakened him? And where was it? Suddenly, the table shook beneath his arms. And at the same moment he heard, or fancied that he heard, a light, soft step. Another. Sounds as of bare feet upon the floor. He was terrified beyond the power to cry out or move. Perforce he waited, waited there in the darkness through seeming centuries of such dread as one may know yet live to tell. He tried vainly to speak the dead woman's name vainly to stretch forth his hand across the table to learn if she were there. His throat was powerless. His arms and hands were like lead. Then occurred something most frightful. Some heavy body seemed hurled against the table with an impetus that pushed it against his breast so sharply as nearly to overthrow him. And at that same instant... He heard and felt the fall of something upon the floor with so violent a thump. The whole house was shaken by the impact. A scuffling ensued, and a confusion of sounds impossible to describe. Murloc had risen to his feet. Fear had by excess forfeited control of his faculties. He flung his hands upon the table. Nothing was there. There is a point at which terror may turn to madness, and madness incites to action. With no definite intent, 
from no motive but the wayward impulse of a madman. Murloc sprang to the wall with a little groping, seized his loaded rifle, and without aim discharged it. By the flash, which lit up the room with a vivid illumination, he saw an enormous panther dragging the dead woman toward the window, its teeth fixed in her throat. Then there were darkness blacker than before, and silence. And when he returned to consciousness, the sun was high, and the wood vocal with the songs of birds. The body lay near the window, where the beast had left it when frightened away by the flash and report of the rifle. The clothing was deranged, the long hair in disorder, the limbs lay anyhow. From the throat, dreadfully lacerated, had issued a pool of blood, not yet entirely coagulated. The ribbon in which she had bound the wrists was broken. The hands were tightly clenched. Between the teeth was a fragment of the animal's ear. This next story is by a man dubbed the father of the English ghost story, Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu. He was sadly also dubbed the Invisible Prince in Dublin after his wife tragically died at age 34. He was a recluse except for in the middle of the night when he would move like a ghost wandering the streets of Dublin often reading a book on astrology or demonology. I apologize to my Irish listeners for any butchering I do of these town names. Thank you, Roisin, for your help with the pronunciation of one town, although I still feel like I said it wrong. This story was published in 1838 and is called The Woman in the Black Coat. I was born into a rich and important family in Tyrone, Ireland. I was the younger of two daughters, and we were the only children. My sister was six years older than me, and we didn't play much together when I was young. And I was only 12 years old when she got married. I remember the day of her wedding well. Many people came, all of them laughing, singing, and happy. But I felt sad when my sister left with her new husband, Mr. Carew. She was always very nice to me, nicer than my mother, 
And so I cried when she went away to her new home in Dublin. My mother and father didn't love me. They wanted a son and were not interested in me. About a year after my sister got married, a letter arrived from Mr. Carew. He said that my sister was ill and that she wanted to come home to Tyrone and stay with us, to be with her family. I was sad that she was ill, but also very happy about her visit. They're leaving Dublin on Sunday, my father told me, and they're arriving here on Tuesday evening. Tuesday came, and it was a very long day. Hour after hour came and went, and I listened all the time from my sister and her husband. Now the sky was dark, and soon it was midnight. But I couldn't sleep. I listened and waited. Suddenly, at about one o'clock in the morning, I heard a noise far away. I ran out of my bedroom and down to the living room. They're here, they're here, I called to my father and we quickly opened the front door to see better. We waited there for a few minutes and we heard the noise again. Somebody crying far away in the night. But we saw nothing. There were no lights and no people there. We went outside waiting to say hello and to help my sister with her bags. But nobody was there. Nobody came. I looked at my father, and he looked at me. We didn't understand. I know I heard a noise, he said. Yes, I answered. I heard it too, father, but where are they? We went back into the house without another word. We were suddenly afraid. The next day, a man arrived and told us that my sister was dead. On Sunday, she felt very ill. On Monday, she was worse, and on Tuesday, at about one o'clock in the morning, she died. At the same time, we were outside the house in the night, waiting for her. I never forgot that night. For the next two years, I was very sad. You could say that I stopped living. I didn't want to do anything or speak to anyone. Mr. Carew soon married another young woman in Dublin, and I felt angry that he forgot my sister so quickly. I was now the only child of a rich and important family. So before I was 14 years old, men started to visit our home. They wanted to meet me, and perhaps to marry me. But I didn't like any of these men, and I thought I was too young to be married. When I was 16, my mother took me to Dublin. Dublin is a big city, she said. We're going to meet richer and more interesting men than the ones back home in Tyrone. We can easily find you a good husband in Dublin. In Dublin, I began to be happier. I met a lot of friendly people, and I went dancing every evening. A lot of young men came to speak to me and asked me to dance. 
I liked talking to them. I started to live and laugh again, and I didn't even think about my dead sister all the time. But my mother was not so happy. She wanted me to find a husband quickly. One night, before I went to bed, she came into my room and said, Do you know Lord Glenn Fallon? <laughs> yes, I answered. He's that ugly old man from Cahargilla. He's not ugly and he's not old, Fanny, my mother said quickly. He's from a very rich and important family, too, and he wants to marry you. He loves you. Loves me. Wants to marry me, but... He's making a mistake, Mother, I said. I don't love him. I can't marry someone I don't love. Think about it, Fanny, my mother answered quietly. He's a good man. And he wants to marry you. You're a very lucky young woman. My mother left the room, and I sat quietly for a long time. Lord Glenn Fallon was a nice, friendly man, I thought. I didn't love him, no, but I did like him. He always talked about interesting things. I never felt happy at home with my mother and father, but I always felt better when I talked to him. The next morning when I saw my mother, I only said one word. Yes. Lord Glenn Fallon and I married the next spring, and two days after our wedding we said goodbye to my family and left Tyrone. Three days later we arrived in Cahargilla and I saw my husband's beautiful house for the first time. It was near a river, and there were many trees and flowers in the garden. Birds sang in the trees, and the sky was blue. I stood next to him and looked at it all, and I left very, very happy. Come, my love, said my husband. You must come in and meet Martha. She cooks and cleans and knows everything about the house. So we went into the house and I met Martha, a friendly old woman with smiling blue eyes. She showed me round the house. Suddenly, I felt excited to be there. It was a very happy place. Women sang in the kitchen, men built fires in the living room, and there were dogs and cats everywhere. Come with me now, madam, said Martha. And look at your bedroom. Then we can take up your bags and you can wash before dinner. I followed her and soon we arrived at a big brown door. This is your room, she said, and opened the door. I stood and looked, suddenly cold with fear. In front of me stood something big and black. I didn't know what it was. I thought it was an old coat, but without anybody inside it. I jumped back quickly, very afraid, and moved away from the door. Is something wrong, madam? Martha asked me. N nothing. Perhaps it's... Nothing, I answered quickly. 
But I thought I saw something in there. I, I thought I saw a big black coat when you opened the door. Martha's face went white with fear. What's, what's wrong? I asked her. Now you look frightened. Something bad is going to happen, she said. When someone sees the black coat in this house, we know that something bad is going to happen soon to the Glen Fallon family. I saw the black coat when I was a child, and the next morning, old Lord Glen Fallon died. Something bad is going to happen now, madam. I know it. We went down to have dinner. I felt unhappy and afraid, but I didn't say anything to my husband about the black coat. I wanted to forget about it and be happy again. The next day, Lord Glenfallon and I went for a walk together to look around the house and gardens because I wanted to know my home better. I like this house and all the people here, I said, and I'm very happy to be here with you. It's much better than Tyrone. My husband was very quiet for a long time. He walked with his head down, thinking. Then, suddenly, he turned to me, took my hand and said, Fanny, listen to me. Listen carefully. There's something I must ask you. Please, only go into the rooms in the front of the house. Never go into the rooms at the back of the building or in the little garden by the back door. Never. Do you understand me, Fanny? His face was white and unhappy. I understood his words, but I didn't understand why he was a suddenly different man. Here, he never smiled or laughed anymore. Perhaps the back of the house was dangerous, I thought. But he didn't want to talk about it anymore. We went back to the house without speaking, and again, I tried to forget his words and to be as happy as I was before. It was about a month later that I met the other woman for the first time. One day, I wanted to go for a walk in the gardens. It was a beautiful day, and I ran up to my room after lunch to get my hat and coat. But when I opened the door of my room, there was a woman sitting near the fire. She was about 40 years old and she wore a black coat. Her face was white, and when I looked closely I saw that her eyes were white too. She was blind. Madam, I said, this is my room. There's a mistake. Your room, she answered. A mistake? No, I don't think so. I don't think there's a mistake. Where is Lord Glenfallen? Down in the living room, I said. But who are you and why are you in my room? Tell Lord Glenfallen that I would like to speak to him, was all she said. I must tell you that I'm Lady Glenfallen. And I want you to leave my room now, I said. 
Lady Glenfallon, you are not. You are not, she cried and hit my face very hard. I cried out for help and soon Lord Glenfallon arrived. I ran out of the room as he ran in and I waited outside to listen at the door. I did not hear every word, but I knew that Lord Glenfallon was very angry and the blind woman was very unhappy. When he came out, I asked him, Who is that woman and why is she in my bedroom? But my husband didn't answer me. Again, his face was white with fear. His only words were, Forget her. But I did not forget her. And every day it was more difficult to talk to my husband. He was always quiet now, always sad and afraid. He sat hours and hours looking into the fires with his unhappy eyes. But I didn't know why, and he didn't want to tell me. One morning after breakfast, Lord Glenfallon suddenly said, I have the answer. We must go away to another country. To France or Spain, perhaps. What do you think, Fanny? He didn't wait for my answer, but left the room very quickly. I sat and thought for a long time. Why must we leave Cahargilla? I didn't understand. I didn't want to go too far away from my mother and father. They were old now, and my father was sometimes ill. They didn't love me very much, but I wanted to be near them. I thought about it all day, and I didn't know what to say to my husband when he arrived back in the evening and came in to dinner. I said nothing. After dinner, I was very tired, and I went up to my bedroom early. I wanted to have a good night's sleep and think about it all again the next day. I closed my eyes and went to sleep, but I did not sleep well because I dreamed of the black coat. Suddenly I woke up. Everything was dark and very quiet, but somebody was at the end of my bed. There was a hand with a light, and behind the light was the blind woman. She had a knife in her other hand. I tried to get out of bed and run to the door, but she stopped me. If you want to live, don't move, she said. Tell me one thing. Did Lord Glenfallon marry you? Yes, he did, I answered. He married me in front of a hundred people. Well, that's sad, she said. Because I don't think he told you that he had a wife. Me. I am his wife, not you, young woman. You must leave this house tomorrow, because if you stay in here, you see this knife? I'm going to kill you with it. Then she left the room without a sound. I didn't sleep again that night. When morning came, I told my husband everything. Who is the blind woman? I asked him. She told me last night she's your wife, that I'm not your wife. 
go into the rooms at the back of the house? Asked my husband angrily. I told you, you must never go there. But I didn't, I answered. I was in my bed all night. She came to me. Please tell me what's happening. My husband's face was white again now, and he didn't speak for a long time. Then he said, No, she is not my wife. You are. Don't listen to her. She doesn't know what she is saying. And he left the room. I ran to find Martha. I didn't like this house anymore. My husband was a difficult man, and I didn't understand him. Who was the blind woman? I wanted to know everything. Don't cry, madam, said Martha when I found her. Sit down and listen to me. What I'm going to tell you is not very nice. The blind woman. The woman in the black coat is dead. You saw her ghost. She was married to your husband, and she was Lady Glen Fallon. Nobody knows how she died. Her bedroom was at the back of the house. Somebody saw your husband with a knife in his hand on the night she died. But did he kill her? Nobody knows. When we found her, the knife was on the floor next to her, and her eyes... Somebody cut her eyes out after she died. Perhaps he didn't want her to see his other woman, his next wife. You... I didn't wait to speak to my husband again. I left that day. I was too afraid to stay another minute. I knew that blind woman was going to come back again and kill me. I said goodbye to Martha, took my bags, and told my driver to take me back. I am happy living here with my mother and father now. The house is quiet. I sleep well each night, and they are friendlier to me than they were before. Sometimes, my dead sister visits me at night, but I'm never afraid. She tells me that the blind woman is trying to find me, and that she wants to kill me. She's jealous of me, but she can never find me there. She must wait for the next Lady Glenvalen. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I wanted to stretch your horror muscles a bit with some more obscure stuff from the 1800s. To those submitting, I will be back into normal episodes after Halloween. Please keep sending in your submissions, but just know if you want to work out some kinks 
or work in some, I don't know your life, then you have some time. But that email address is scareyoutosleep at gmail.com. Next week is a super special episode. My Patreon users have already gotten a taste of what's to come, and I'm so excited to share it with the rest of you. Speaking of Patreon, you can support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash scareyoutosleep. I love sending out stickers, so select that $5 or $10 tier so I can send you a Scare You to Sleep sticker. A huge eternal thank you to this week's patrons, Caroline Addis and Invoking the Tempest. You guys are the best. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Scare You to Sleep. If you care to see my personal stuff, follow me at Shelby B. Scott. Join the Facebook group. If you're not being prompted with questions, then you have found the page and not the group, but there is a link to the group on the page. This week, Mod Rosemary started a spooky phone numbers thread, and I think my phone is haunted now. Maddie started a pets thread, so please come show me your furry, feathery, or scaly friends. Remember to check out Audible with my offer code SCARE for you to get 30 days for free. And I think that's it. Now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. Hey guys, I'm Tara, and I'm joined by my friends Heather and Jessica. Hi! And we're the hosts of Three Spook Girls, a new horror comedy podcast where we drink and talk about all things that scare us. Sometimes it's a haunted house, and sometimes it's ghosts. And sometimes it's about creepy effing black-eyed kids who will catch these hands if they show up at my door at 2 a.m. And yes, I will punch a ghost in the face and then go cry about it in the bathroom later. You can find us on iTunes, Podbean, and CastBox. Pour your favorite drink and join the conversation with us on Instagram and Twitter at 3 Spooked Girls. And take a drink when we mispronounce things. So again, join us for 3 Spooked Girls, available on iTunes, Podbean, and CastBox. Bye! Bye! Bye.